America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. But the West of the old times, with its strong characters, its stern battles, and its tremendous stretches of loneliness, can never be blotted from my mind. Buffalo Bill. Episode 9, Dave's American Story. Dave Rogers is chief editor of the Frontier American Illustrated News. As a tribal member and Westerner who is a direct descendant of Squire and Edward Boone, he took exception to the poor portrayals and incorrect stereotypes of the Old West era that have been perpetrated by modern authors and screenwriters. This began a quest to reveal the truth about a people, place, and chain of events that has been buried beneath the dust of a dozen generations. Dave started as a technology writer, then corporate trainer, before becoming a tech media personality. He always maintained a deep interest in the American West and a strong affinity toward his frontier family's farming and ranch lineage dating back to colonial times. With over 30 years' experience as a researcher of historic lifeways, amateur archaeologist, archivist, muscle-loading weapons specialist, horseman animal trainer, primitive outdoorsman and living history interpreter, he is now putting his experience toward chronicling the legacy of our nation's frontier story. Dave has made numerous television, radio, and editorial appearances in addition to writing extensively on the evolution of technology, primitive survival, and the lives of people in past ages. His goal for the Frontier American Illustrated News is to engage the new generation so that they will embrace the legacy of America's frontier past. It's important to pass on knowledge of the old ways as well as an understanding of our shared culture to our youth. They are the heirs to a great story and knowing it will help them live fuller, richer lives with greater understanding of the world they live in today. Today, my guest is Dave, and Dave is a member of my group, American History, Our Heroic Journey, and I asked Dave to come and be a guest because he has been a fun contributor to the group with the articles that he has posted. He knows a lot about the American West and is going to give us some fun information, maybe some misnomers that we have and clarify those for us. Before he begins with that, I would like Dave to tell us a little bit about himself, if you would, Dave. Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, Tina, thanks for having me on the show. I, uh, just like to start off with saying that I'm a many generation Westerner. Uh, on my mom's side, I'm a card carrying tribal member. On my dad's side, uh, they came here uh, back when the Wild West was still the frontier. And when I mean the frontier, I mean colonial times. So uh, family's been here a while. And uh, there's a, this tremendous transition of time. Like when I, when I uh, write an article about something, you'll hear me say our ancestors, and I'm referring to the ancient people who live here on the, end, the land. And that, the reason why I do that is because if you move here, if you just emigrated here, it's part of your story. I feel a, a tremendous connection to the story of the United States and especially the American West. But at the same time, if you're going to live here and be my neighbor, you become part of that story, too. You become the heir of that legacy. And 
if you're uh, if you're choosing this life, then you're not an outsider anymore. You're now part of the family. And get, getting back to my uh, family, though, um, family lineage goes way back. I'm a direct descendant of the Boone family. Daniel oh, Boone's wow. my uncle. I am Edward Boone. His brother is actually my direct descendant. So That's it's crazy. Okay. I have to branch all these different directions. He, he's straight back. Uh, I um, proudly descended from a lot of figures. I mean, on the shadier side, uh, the Bradshaw gang, they were uh, Cooks and Hills gang of uh, Oklahoma, 1930s, Rob Banks, bootleg, did all that. And that's my family too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> years ago, I worked at a financial institution and I bragged to them that I was the first member of my family to work on this side of the counter. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, but, um, so, so it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous legacy to carry. And I, I try to tell people, you know, let's get the politics out of it for a minute because there is kind of this year zero ideology that's taught that anything from the past is bad. Uh, don't, don't listen to it. We're just moving forward. We don't look in the past. And the problem is, is just like in your own memories, most of the answers you have in this life, you draw from the past. The, uh, the, the future, what's going to happen five minutes from now is a blank slate until it happens. We can guess, we can assume based on our past experience, but we're not going to know until we're there. It's, it's foolish to not look forward, but it's equally foolish to not remember your past. And when it comes, when it comes to the family legacy, like in my background, um, my background, I start off as a technology writer. Uh, I've done a lot of media, whether it's uh, TV shows, radio shows, podcasts like this, uh, write, uh, writing articles out for the uh, print publications and the online publications. I finally decided to transition into this because one, it's my hobby. Um, I have a lot of fun doing it, but, but also I really enjoy establishing that connection. And I guess uh, I, could, I could probably ramble on and monologue for the next hour or so, but I'm going to let you go into the next question I, from there. Well, this is a two-part question, I guess. When was the first time that you remember being proud of America? And does the American West have to do with that? Well, I've always been proud of um, this country. This is the country of my people. This is the country of my family. And when I say my people, um, I mean everywhere from the American Indian people of my grandma, who's a, who's a wonderful little lady. I mean, I lost her just a couple of years ago. She almost made it to 100. Wow. Uh, I, to um, the Europeans who came here and ceased being Europeans. And uh, I'm not a European American. I'm just an American, and I've got brothers and sisters whose ethnicities are Asiatic and African, but they're part of my family too. And it's good to be proud of your lineage. It's good to be proud of where you came from, but be proud of what we're building here too as an American family, and we're not perfect. Um, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more later, but by all means, there's no such thing as a perfect country, and there's definitely not a perfect government. I could very easily say I'm incredibly patriotic. I love this country, but I don't love the government. The government works for us, and they're not a very good employee most of the time. 
can you see me getting a little teary-eyed? <laughs> because there is so much division right now with you talking about how we're a family. I think that's really profound. It really is. Thank you. I love that. I've got friends that are uh, Democrats and Republicans, um, very conservative, very liberal there's going to be disagreements. There's going to be a lot of, you know, I have a lot of fears and um, concerns about where we're going. This is, this is a big crossroads in history. Uh, what, what we can't do is viciously turn on one another. And um, friend, a friend of mine who is a shooting instructor for um, Pima County Sheriff's Department, we were, we were talking about it and he said, well, no matter what the outcome, we don't want to see a war amongst ourselves. Uh, either way, that's going to absolutely destroy what we know today. And um, if wars happen over things such like this, okay, well, you know, time will tell. But I think it's incredibly foolish when I see some people say, "Well, let's get this war started. Let's let's go. Let's go set things right." And it's like, well, every single time a president's elected or steals an election or insert what you feel in there every every time that happens there's someone on the other side saying well we gotta we gotta set things right we gotta take to the streets we've got to fight we, i i understand the passion i understand the feeling but at the same time i think uh if you encounter war or human mortality face to face you're not as quick to say yes i want that uh, it's not going to be a grand squirrel hunt it would be ugly and it's to take everybody in this country would be affected by it. It would turn your lives upside down. And, uh, you know, like I said, I mean, I, I find myself to be a, a very conservative person, but uh, I don't have the desire in me, no matter what I feel about things, to go out and start harming other people because I'm unhappy right now or I'm scared right now. We, we are still a family and uh, we need to remember that first and foremost. I'm not saying concede to all the things that our founding fathers warned us about, but we also have to walk into that with a wisdom of when we uh, say something, we do something, there's gonna be consequences regardless. And do we know what those consequences are and are we willing to accept them? You are very wise. If only people would think of it think of us in those terms how much better would we be as a country right now because families disagree mm -hmm. but in the end they're still family and i think both sides would do well to remember that we both want what's best for this country i think it, i think what it's a case of we all want what's better we have different philosophies on how to achieve that how did you first get interested in the American West? I was born in it. My uh, family has always been a uh, Western family, uh, going all the way back. My uh, ancestors founded Fort Smith, Arkansas, part of the Ketowa Band uh, moving out West, and that was in the early 1800s. My dad's side came from New England down through the Midwest, Nebraska, my mom's side came mainly out of uh, Carolinas, Tennessee, Arkansas, right up into the Midwest. 
And it's, it's always been part of the family story. My earliest memories are sitting with my uh, little uh, grandma uh, watching John Wayne movies. And it doesn't matter that they're so historically inaccurate. Uh, <laughs> it's part of Americana. And she, uh, she personally loved Elvis Presley. She loved Johnny Cash. She, uh, she loved John Wayne. She, she loved all these American icons. And I would look at my aunts and uncle, uncles, and they were the uh, poster child for a Native American lineup. And they had tremendous love and pride in this country. But I think the best way, I, I put it on my website where I talk about, yes, there's been many collisions of cultures that have happened here. And you can't say, well, this country sucks and this, it stinks and I don't, wanna, I don't wanna talk about it, I don't wanna think about it because, because look at what happened. It's like, yeah, but we're conscious of the bad things that happen and we're, tr we're still trying to figure out and we're debating amongst ourselves, how can we make this right? How can we make this good? My, um, the American Indians in my family don't feel like victims. Um, they can look back and say, oh yeah, the, the government was pretty unjust and screwed up doing this, but it doesn't make them hate America because America's our home. You know, I'm, I consider myself a Caucasian, obviously, but I'm still a tribal member and I'm very proud of it. I have enough blood to be a full voting member of the tribe. I could go live on the reservation if I wanted to. Did you say what tribe it was? Ketoa Band. They're, uh, the Ketoas are kind of a branch of the Cherokee Nation. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's funny whenever you hear Cherokee, it's like, you could probably take a sampling of just about any Midwestern person and find some degree of Cherokee in them. And that there's a good reason for that. There really wasn't the kind of taboos that people always say, oh, well, whites would never marry Indians. Well, they did. And my family lineage, I can go right back into the 1700s. It was very open, it was very prolific. The assimilation of the Cherokee into the, uh, the newcomers who arrived is pretty obvious. I mean, when people say, well, it's obliterating it, I'm thinking, well, you could look at it that way, yes, but look at my family now. My wife is African. My uh, sister-in-law is Filipino. Uh, we're, we're continuing this mix-in and this melting pot. And honestly, I think that's how God intended us to be. It, it's only going to stay looking a certain way for a while, and then history just moves on. And the whole point of being a historian is to look back, remember, remember the good and the bad, but know the story. Don't, don't give yourself a sense of cultural amnesia to where you don't even know where you came from. I hear somebody say, oh, well, I'm Scottish. I'm Irish. Really? Well, where in Scotland or Ireland were you born? Oh, you weren't. Well, it's okay to be um, proud of your culture, and you should be, but I'm an ethnic American. Uh, if you want to know what my uh, what the European side of my family is, it's it's a mix of Scottish, English, Spanish, and German mostly. There, there's such a polyglot of other stuff in there. It's a hodgepodge. I can speak German, but when I go to Germany, I'm definitely not a German. I'm an outsider. I have friends over there, and I enjoy visiting there. But it's not my homeland. It's not my country. I'm a, I'm a native here of this time and i'm not ashamed of that if you if you said well go home well where's home it's the same thing like if you tell someone of african descent well go home well america's your home and when when someone says well 
you know, I, I have a, a friend of mine who said, well, what, what about uh, people who were brought here in slavery? You know, we, we have our brother and sister Americans who were brought here in slavery. And I go, yeah, we do. And um, after the Civil War, we established, we established a country in West Africa called Liberia. And the option went out. Do you want to, uh, you know, for all those who are descended from the slaves who were brought here, if you would like to go back to your ancestral land and live there, that's open to you. You can. Well, the majority didn't. This was their home. They wanted to stay here. They wanted to make something. And it was hard. It's hard being a second-class citizen. But these are our American brothers and sisters now. And the ancestors of the people uh, who are getting so vociferous on their politics saying, well, I didn't have much of a choice. Well, your ancestors made a choice. They chose to stay. You could go live in Liberia if you want to, but you're here. Let's focus on being a family here. And I'm not saying, well, nothing was wrong. America never did anything. We know that's not true. But with all the collisions, both good and bad, all the cultural collisions, good and bad, our ancestors then learned from it. We continue to learn from it. What I've really said, uh, and I have this on my website, is as I reach through the veils of time to touch the face of my ancestors, I realize that the face I'm touching is my own. Did you do that yourself? Is that your own quote? You are a wordsmith. I didn't want to call my writer myself a writer for a long time, but uh, I was raised by, both my parents were teachers. My uh, dad was in music, my mom, um, in English and English lit. And they had me studying Latin and um, reading on a college level by the time I finished sixth grade. I dumbed down my language in junior high so I wouldn't get killed by people. <laughs> I, uh, I, I stayed on that. And one day I started looking around and I was looking at all these magazines with my articles in there and all these. And I go, well, I guess I'm a writer then. I, uh, I kind of arrived here. I, I never wanted to say it because calling yourself a writer is like calling yourself an actor. You know, um, I grew up in Southern California and every other person was an actor, of course. And it's like, well, really, well, what's your latest film? What are you doing right now? So I always thought writer was on the same ilk, you know, kind of a cop out. And I didn't want to call myself that. But eventually you look around and you say, well, I'm getting paid to write content and this is what I do. So, okay. Sounds as if you have done a lot of research. Is that something that you enjoy? It is. I started research literally when I was in grade school. And uh, when, it came to, uh, when it came to the Old West life, my grandma gave me my first rifle when I was about five years old. So I started shooting when I was five. And then when it came to horses, um, grew up with a lot of saddle time, a lot of friends who uh, have ranches, um, spent a lot of time with them, learned from them, learned from their families, started going off doing my own stuff. And as those years amounted, I started realizing, you know, I've picked up a lot over the years. Uh, our family had a cabin up in the mountains and I was always up there. When I was a teenager, I'd go up there on my own and I would be ranging all over the forests. Uh, I grew up uh, going to nature camps as I was a kid so I could learn about the plants and the different, uh, the different animals and uh, tracking and all this stuff. And it's just, by the time I was a senior in high school, this was pretty firmly established what I wanted to do. Uh, I was working at Knott's Berry Farm. 
that's a trash chin in Southern California, and they have a ghost town. And I was the youngest member of Ghost Town Entertainment at the age of 18. And that's really where I uh, got my start. There's uh, pictures floating around there, I'm sure, and some dusty old photo album of me working in the blacksmith shop and uh, walking around in my getup. But from there, uh, you know, a lot of living history. I, I have a, uh, a love-hate relationship with living history. Um, for some people, it's cosplay, and that's okay. Uh, if that's what you like, that's fine. I can't relate to it at all. For me, I, I liked um, a more academic approach to it, and uh, I started uh, calling myself a uh, historic anthropologist. And I studied anthropology in college, and I thought, you know, that, that's really what you're doing is you're studying the life ways of these people, getting to understand them. Uh, they're not around to interview anymore, but their letters are, their books are, their thoughts are. I just immersed myself into that. And I can't, well, I, I can, the room's a little bit of a mess, but I'm surrounded right now with books that go back uh, over 300 years. And I, I'm looking, I've got everything from Cook's report to his uh, voyage in 1787 to, uh, you know, a British 1783 report on the United States, this new founded country and the politics that they're establishing to uh, stuff leading right up into the, um, to the end of the 1800s. Trying my best not to have that much television time and instead read, immerse myself into the culture that I'm very much proud to be a part of. That's fascinating. You know what's interesting I think about your childhood is when somebody outside of the U.S. thinks about a child growing up <laughs> in America, the childhood you, you described, especially in the West, isn't that so typical? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm in I'm in Arizona. And I conceal carry all the time. So when someone says, uh, "Well, do they still uh, pack guns in um, in the United States?" I'm like, "Well, some do. You know, some some do. Is it because you want to be a troublemaker? No, it's because you're absolutely a law-abiding citizen, and you're you're kind of maintaining this reputation that, hey, look, it's not a good idea to be a criminal in Arizona because your odds of getting shot are incredibly high, but I think equally important, if you're gonna if you're gonna take that responsibility, you should get your certification in um, first aid CPR. At least make yourself uh, some degree of a uh, volunteer EMS person. You can be uh, part of the solution in case anything happens, and there's a good chance it won't. Great, you're prepared, and like they say, better be prepared and uh, not need it than need it not be prepared. You know, here's, here's a little fun fact. I was never a Boy Scout. I was a Cub Scout, and that was it. What I, what I wound up learning, though, when I was in, um, I, I was going to these camps, and I was learning all this woodcraft, so I knew a lot of the Boy Scout things. I discovered uh, D.C. Beard, who is actually the uh, father of the Boy Scouts of America, and I started reading his books. They're still in publication. He uh, lived from 1850 until the 1930s, I believe, and uh, D.C. Beard is, uh, he, he was very good at citing out and giving illustrations of how to do things. So I started that way. And once I built up all that knowledge, uh, by the time 18 rolled around, I was working in entertainment. Well, I started running into these mountain man guys. So I started going to these mountain man events. So now here I'm this teenage kid hanging out in the woods with a bunch of uh, 
uh, Vietnam War veteran biker guys in buckskins shooting muzzleloaders. From there, I really dug into the woodcraft and the fieldcraft, campcraft, and uh, it just compounded over the years. With all that uh, put together, I started realizing that my generation doesn't know this anymore. When I started in this hobby, I was the pup. I was the youngster. Now at 48, I am the pup. I am the youngster. That's not good. The uh, whole generation's not learning it. I started writing that because I would talk to some of the guys who do the reenacting and uh, they don't even know how to start a fire, let alone cook breakfast. They'll, they'll have these ideas on how to do it and they kind of sort of do it. But I'm thinking, you know what, I've read the books and the letters of all these guys and some people really sucked at that stuff. I mean, that's historically accurate too. But if you're going to call yourself the historian, if you're going to call yourself the historical anthropologist who knows this stuff, then you need to know it. You need to be the expert on it. There are guys in the Civil War hobby that, that are like, no, you can't wear that kind of jacket to this event because that's a Richmond type two. They didn't have that here. And it sounds silly, but these guys are really serious on the historical accuracy. I, I commend them for what they're doing on that. And, and that, that goes, that's kind of, these guys in my book are the opposite of the cosplayers who aren't doing it all. Hey, I want to put on a show. And it's like, well, if you wanted to put on a show, that's great. Um, Last time I heard, Knott's Berry Farm it always has positions opening up in its stunt team, uh, you know, <laughs> go on down there and apply. <laughs> Let's dig into a little bit. Do you have some stories to share about American his about the American West? Maybe some people and, and also why it is important to make sure that stays an integral part of American history, that it is not forgotten as you were just talking about that is it disappearing because people don't know about it and so it absolutely is is that something that is detrimental to our history which i'm sure i already know the answer but i would love to hear your story a few stories maybe and your viewpoints mm -hmm. on that but why is it so important to our history well the american west uh, really represents that turning point where old prejudices of class, of race, ethnicity, started to give away to a more merit-based system. Your actions, what you are. Now, I don't care about uh, what kind of a lord your grandfather was. Uh, who are you as a person? What are, what are you doing? And it wasn't, it wasn't this utopia. We'll never have a utopia, but it was a turning point where you started to see the uh, tearing down of a lot of these barriers that were here. Uh, one great example is an early Los Angeles woman, and we're going to go back to the 1850s. Her name is Biddy Mason. And Biddy Mason was brought here a slave. And the problem with that is California was a free state. I'll give you the uh, cliff notes on it. She had a friend who's a fairly well-known attorney who said, hey, Biddy, you know, you, you realize that uh, legally you're not a slave here. And I can, I can help you uh, secure your emancipation. And uh, I think you're a, you're a very valued member of this community. I'd like you to stay here. Um, what do you think? 
And um, sure enough, she, um, she attained her freedom. And she was an incredible uh, nurse. She worked with a lot of the doctors who were here as an assistant to them. She became very prosperous. She invested in land. She became a landowner. She became a philanthropist. She is one of the founders of the, of the AME Church in Los Angeles. She really went on to live this worthwhile life and changed so many people's lives and died an old, very happy woman surrounded by her loved ones and friends. And, you know, she had a happily ever after life. You have someone like uh, Andreas Pico. Andreas Pico was the brother of the last Mexican governor of California. He fought against the Americans as they came into Southern California. He won um, a great victory at the Battle of San Pascal. He was incredibly formidable. He was the epitome of the tough frontiersman. And he was so respected and liked that even after California became part of the United States, he retained a tremendous amount of political power. He was the commander of the militia out here. In 1857, the sheriff and members of his posse were murdered. Pico took over the uh, all the resources to go get these guys. And they went out, they cleaned house, and they wiped them. They hunted them from San Diego to San Onofre and wiped them out. But he was tremendously liked by all. I mean, he was a no-nonsense guy you didn't want to cross, you didn't want to mess with, but he was also charismatic and deeply respected. Uh, I just wrote about a guy by the name of Jonathan R. Davis. We don't even know what he looks like. There, if, you, if you Google him, you'll find pictures of this guy with a white hat, pretty formidable looking guy. But that was a picture that True West Magazine picked and they said, look, we don't know who this, what this guy looks like. We don't know of any existing photos of him. But based on uh, eyewitness descriptions, he probably looks something like this. Well, people took that picture and ran with it. And uh, now that's considered, oh, this is, this is the guy, this is his photo. It's, it might be, but it's probably not. Uh, anyway, uh, here's a guy who came out to the gold fields after the Mexican War, just wanted to be left alone, wanted to be a prospector. He and two other uh, members of his group get attacked by a gang of perhaps 14, maybe even more. Um, but we know, uh, we know at least there were about uh, 14 of them who attacked him. Well, both of his friends fell early. One fell killed, one fell mortally wounded. So that left him alone. He killed 11 of them and ran off the rest. That's straight out of Hollywood. That, that's an unbelievable story. The, the witnesses had, who saw it had to swear out affidavits and uh, literally sit down and present their cases amongst the most reputable people in the state uh, in order for it to be accepted as, yeah, that is what happened. And uh, they even said, hey, we know where the bodies are buried. If you want to come out and see the bodies, uh, we'll go dig them up for you. But this guy did it. This guy killed seven men with headshots. I mean, he hit him elsewhere, but the accounts say that all the men who died from gunfire had gunshot wounds to the head. When Davis ran out of bullets, uh, he had four assailants charge in on him. One of them had a sword. He pulled his Bowie knife and killed all four of them. A historian by the name of John Bosnecker really made this guy become the known personality that he is. But 
I put out an article on it um, as well. And everybody says the same thing. They're like, this guy's the living, he's the real deal. And afterwards, he really didn't try to capitalize on the fame of it. He didn't try to self-promote. Uh, he kind of drifts off into history. Uh, for the longest time, we didn't know his fate. We, we kind of saw, we assumed he died sometime in the early um, 1890s. Bossenecker actually found a newspaper clipping that gives his obituary, so now we have a date. But he really just faded off into the uh, sunset, to proverbially quote that. And uh, he's one of my favorite um, characters of the American West, and I don't even know what he looks like. There are some fascinating people from the American West, aren't there? Did it take a certain kind of individual to come here and make a name for him or herself? Well, it did. I mean, imagine a place that's potentially as dangerous as Syria, depending on the time and uh, where you're at. Uh, and you would, um, you know, most of the people coming out here were relatively young, um, relatively from their uh, late teens to about 40-ish. And there are, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, you know, the, the Indian threat wasn't as great as Hollywood um, uh, portrays it. And I'm like, true, it depends on the place and time. You know, if you're going through, if you're going through territory of a tribe that's currently hostile and um, at war with the United States, well, you're, you're, running, a, you're running a risk there. Uh, but there were, there were a lot of uh, white desperados to worry about, too. And, and that's what the books say. If, when you're carrying arms for self-defense, uh, they're not just saying, oh, well, you got to watch out for all those Indians. Uh, a lot of those Indians, uh, you could hire them. Uh, they, could, uh, they would be more than happy to assist in trail guides. There's accounts of there. There's imagery of that. Uh, a lot of them were um, farmers and ranchers. You could contract with them, uh, get stock, get food. So more than likely your, um, your experience with a lot of the tribal people probably would have been a pleasant one. Uh, were there ones who would steal from you? Yes. Were there ones who would attack you? Certainly. Um, you could say that about the uh, whites. You could say that about uh, the Mexicans of, of the uh, new territories and um, across the border. Uh, you could say that about most people, uh, if not all. If you can't say it about them, it's probably because there's not enough of them here. So, but uh, that that is human nature, and uh, you you did have to be prepared against that. Living out here all alone, you were the first responder. If something happened, if someone got hurt, you were expected to know it, and they really did have that knowledge. And a lot of people say, "Well, they really didn't read." No, that's not true. Uh, we know for a fact that. Uh, um, according to the 1850 census, over 95.5% of our population was literate. So it was a remarkable thing if you weren't. Uh, you could go out on the far frontier and find people who weren't, but it wasn't the norm. It was noteworthy. And first aid, when I, when I look at their books, they had a much better grasp on it than we give them credit for. I mean, they understood things like rescue breathing, artificial respiration, um, saving people from choking. And you can find all these processes in the books. I've got a great book that talks about, um, it's for the householder classroom, 1849. And it's pretty descriptive, it's pretty comprehensive. When people say, well, they, they didn't really have good uh, treatment. Well, they had effective treatments for rabies. I mean, 
people say, oh, you just died back then. No, you didn't. All you have to do is open a book and research it. I've read articles where people said, well, dental hygiene was relatively unknown. That's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. How do we know? Well, we dig up bodies all the time and we can, we can analyze teeth. Uh, we can, um, but it's also well immersed in the literature going back to colonial times. I've got, a, um, I've got a medical book here from the 1700s that says, nobody wants uh, rotten teeth and stinking breath. Here's some, be- here's some good tips on how to keep your mouth clean and <laughs> well brushed. Uh, you know, so, you know, but, but George Washington had a genetic defect where his teeth fell out. So that's how everybody, everybody lost it. Yes, um, I've done some a little bit of research on that, and he he did his best. He yeah, really, you know, it wasn't as if he didn't care about dental hygiene. He was uh, super vigilant about it, but yeah. the odds were stacked up against him, weren't they? They really were. And uh, you know, we now let's pat ourselves on the back. We've made tremendous strides in technology. We're uh, traveling space now. We. Uh, our medical is obviously way better than what it was back then, but it wasn't necessarily the Stone Age back then. You know, I'll hear people say, well, you know, they didn't even know about their own filth. Well, of course they did. And there's volumes on it. I mean, I don't need to grasp for straws and say, I found some obscure book here who, that mentions it. Look up any book on uh, hygiene. Well, they didn't understand psychology. Well, no, Sigmund Freud um, was the creator of the marketing term psychology. But in times before Sigmund Freud, it was called mental hygiene or spiritual hygiene, which I think is more descriptive. No doubt Freud came up with some new concepts, but people back then kind of got it that, hey, this guy's messed up because he went through an awful traumatic experience and he's trying to come to terms with it. There, there's, just, there's just all these different, um, where, where do I start? There, there's all these different levels of why we can't associate with our past that have been created. And they've been mostly made up by people who don't know themselves. So probably the biggest enemies of our historical past are the docents in a lot of these museums around, um, around the country that we go to. I mean, how many times have you walked into a museum and there's always the same smell of old paint? You've got some old dusty dress laid out on the bed like a corpse at some wake that's been laying there for years uh and and then you and then you have this docent saying well they really didn't read and they just pooed and threw it out the window because they didn't know any better and you know it's just and and i'm sitting there i could mix pain in my mouth i'm shaking my head so hard listening (laughs) to these people talk again have we made improvements yes we absolutely have and we should be proud of that but these people weren't Neanderthals. You know, we, we think these people who lived just 100 years ago were a bunch of troglodytes who didn't know any better, and they weren't. I, I think that is, um, you know, when you're done with these tours at these houses, you're like, oh, why did I waste my Saturday going in here? Thank goodness we're not these people. They're all dead and gone. Let's go have an ice cream and forget about them. That's really a shame. Uh, if I was going to tell somebody, how do you keep people coming back to your historical organization, I would say make it alive. Mm, uh, yes. look, look at things like Charlotte Hall in Arizona. Look at things like uh, Fort Tejon when they have a living history event in, um, in California. Uh, look at places like uh, Old Town San Diego, uh, Bent's Fort, uh, Old Sturbridge Village. 
these are these are great examples of walking in and when you walk into a room you feel like whoever was here literally stepped out about 30 seconds ago but it'll be right back and you can see the sights and the sounds and when they're baking you can smell the fresh bread and you can see them um, cooking and you know the sights the sounds the smells and realize that they're normal people and if you were put back in that situation you would acclimate into it you'd become just like them very quickly that that's the story it's the story of people it's the story of us and uh it's it's very much alive it's very much human and we need to really take it beyond these inscrutable expressions on these old ambrotype photos these monochrome pictures and you say well yeah they're 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 long dead and gone oh no they're not and i love these modern softwares that are bringing these pictures to life if you haven't seen it yet it's awesome uh, but it suddenly makes these people human again. And we forget how human they are. Why is it important to keep the American West alive and part of our history and make sure it doesn't fade away? Well, it's our proactiveness and our rugged individualism. And it's, it's not just, do you know how to tack up a horse? Do you know how to go find water or make fire? It's also, um, how proactive are you of taking care of things? If some guy keeled over and had a heart attack, would you know what to do? If uh, there was um, someone being attacked on the street, well, if you don't intervene, that person's not gonna get any help in time. The police will be along after it's over. What can you do in the meantime legally to help? How good are you at your home improvements? Can you change a tire? Can you change the oil? I was amazed to find out that a lot of people growing up today don't they don't know how to do any of that and it's not because they're stupid it's not because they're ignorant it's because they're not being taught i have um, never learned how to change <laughs> that's why i always have my cell phone yeah <laughs> you know i don't think my dad realized it but that was good dad time um i loved my dad showing me some basic automotive and uh sitting around friends um you know, and I've got, I've got a couple of friends, namely, that I come to for automotive uh, needs because they know way more than I do. And I, I enjoy that interaction. I enjoy that, um, you know, that tribal time, if it were, because they are my tribe. You know, the, the people closest to you that share your interests are your tribe. And we need that. We can't ever abandon that. That's, that's mainly the reason of the American West, why it's so important is it represents that rugged individualism. It represents that can do. Uh, if you're sitting here and saying, well, I can't do it because it's not my place to do it. Well, then you've lost the American mentality. We are a can do. And it, it's abs and shame on you if you're going to say, I'm just going to sit aside like a sheep and watch all this happen and not do anything about it because it's really not my place. My betters will be along and they'll do it. And I would say, if you find yourself feeling that feckless and that unable to do anything, you can change it. And I don't care who you are. I'm not a big guy. You don't have to be a big guy to be a lion at heart. I've known some very small, meek looking people who are absolute lions in soul. And it, it's, a, it's just a question of, do you want to be that person? Do you want to be that individual? I love the idea that if the power went out, I would know what to do. I could transition my house back to a pre-Edison operating model. And 
when you when you have i have a lot of the millennials and the proverbial zoomers now approaching me saying you know that, that's true if the electrical went out and i lost my smartphone uh, i'd be pretty out of my element and once again that's not that's not a uh, criticism of them as people they're biologically the same as i am their intellect their intellectual capacity is the same as mine they weren't taught and shame on us for not teaching them so what what i'm trying to do with mine is uh, i'm i'm creating a series of guidebooks that kind of give you that boy scout manual for being a frontiersman for um, working on a pioneer home or ranch and i'm just going through that and i've got friends who do all that that i've done it with over the years that i can consult because I'm kind of a jack of all trades. I may know a certain amount of this, but my friend who actually runs that ranch can fill in all the blanks that I don't. I'm going to be the journalist here and I'm going to put in my experiences and my feedback and let them say what they have to say on it. So yeah, it's it's definitely very relative. That uh, that can-do mentality also allows you to live a fuller, richer life. It gives you a lot more confidence in yourself. It's amazing how liberating that is when you start flushing the doubt out of your life. Uh, you can call yourself a victim. What's it going to get you? A sympathy hug? That's nice. What else? That's it. And do you really want people giving you that pitied look like they feel sorry for you and they're, you know, secretly, they're just glad they're not you. That's what that look is. And it's, I, I, I appreciate the empathy because we've all been in that um, state. I'm no exception to that. But you can't stay in that state. You have to pull yourself out of it. And the most damaging thing we're doing now is we're saying, no matter what happened to you, you're a victim now. Yes, I totally agree. And you have no control. You're, you're a victim. You're, and I'm like, no, the only way that you're a victim is if you die or you choose to remain a victim. By calling them a victim, it gives mm -hmm. that person permission to not do anything. Right. I would, I would say this, and this is probably the most provocative thing I'm going to say in this whole interview, is uh, regardless of how awful someone was to you, and, and, you know, people can do unbelievable, unspeakable things to one another. If you survived an encounter such as that, would you really want that horrible, awful, wretched person to lord over the rest of your life? I would implore you for you to not let that happen. And I know that's asking a lot because people have been through awful things. And I would tell people, you know, I've got a few experiences of my own I'm not sharing here, but you can get through them. And will they change you? Absolutely. Life experience changes you. All life experience changes you. And uh, tragedy and awful things are no exception. You can get through it. Why? Because you're still breathing. And the choice really is yours. Don't, uh, I'll tell you, there's, there's only two people um, who really want you to be a victim. And that is the evil person who did whatever awful thing it was to you because they feel a little more powerful to see you still dragging, you know, all these years after it, still dragging and faltering and suffering from it. And the other one is the politician with all those empty promises who wants you to vote for. So I would encourage you to not cater to either one of them, cater to you. Don't be a victim. So that's, that's the most provocative thing I'm probably going to say in this interview.
I, I think it's great. I love it. My final question for you is what does America mean to Dave? It means a lot of things. One, our founding documents were not living documents. Our founding documents were set. The reason why we had set documents is because the English documents previous to the formation of the United States were very living, quote unquote, which means you could arbitrarily translate them. Well, if you can arbitrarily translate them, what kind of legal system do you have? What's illegal yesterday is perfectly fine now and vice versa. What I like is we do need to keep on going with our, um, our merit-based system. You know, anytime you see where, oh, you're a political elite, oh, you're a class elite, okay, get away from that system, that's, that's not us. Don't do that. We're, we're, we're a merit-based system. Who you are is who you choose to be. If you feel sorry for yourself, there's people out there who have far less than you do, and they're far happier than you are. That's attitude. I, I would say that that kind of rugged individualism is great. Uh, if you look at our ancestors, they didn't have the kind of materialism that we have now. Yet, they had this tremendous drive to do amazing things. We still do. Not all of us, but we still do. And I would encourage uh, everyone to reach down deep in their uh, persona and find that and say, this is who we are. We're a family. I've gone all over this world. And the most unique thing about Americans is the shared kinship that we have. When my wife got her citizenship, I saw everyone from the most conservative to the most liberal type saying, congratulations, welcome to the family, welcome to this country. That's powerful and it's still there. And uh, we can talk about how it's vanishing or we can promote it so that it doesn't. And I, I vow for the second option and that's really in a nutshell why I love this country and why it means so much to me. Not because it's perfect, it's not. I've never been a fan of government, even in uh, times where the government was going as close to my way as I, I could imagine it to go they still work for us and they're not the greatest employee. They're, they're, um, a politician's interests are their own first, the country second. And it's just gonna be that way. Human beings, once you get a taste, once you get the taste, you, um, you serve the taste more than you serve your principal. And that's why I'm a term limits guy. Uh, that's why. Yes. And, and that's, that's another reason why I don't think that a Donald Trump or a Joe Biden or a Barack Obama or a George W. Bush is better than me. They're, um, they're all people. They, uh, they've, they've had their uh, setbacks, they've had their accomplishments, but I have that capacity as well. And just remember uh, that all the people who are running our country, quote unquote, are just as smart and stupid as we are. I can I could gather up a bunch of people from any business meeting, and I would say the intellectual capacity of that room is about the same as any politicians out there, possibly higher. So let's not, let's not worship anybody. Let's not think that anybody's our betters. Let's not think anyone's our Lord. That's not the American way to monologue over. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. Tell us where we can find you. 
Well, I uh, just started a website called um, the Frontier American Illustrated News. So FrontierAmericanIllustratedNews.com. I am right now setting up social media for it. Uh, bear with me, the website's still new. Dave has shared a lot of those articles on our Facebook group, on our, our Facebook group, um, and I really appreciate it. They're fascinating. They're oh, thank fun. you. They're fun. You know, I, I try to make it. I try to make it from... Um, you know, flipping pancakes the way they did it back in the day to uh, trail tips, what they did out there in uh, the kind of um, medicine, home remedies, the right kind of fire fuel to use in your campfire. I would say 99.9% .9 of the feedback has been incredibly positive. If there's anybody out there saying anything negative, I would say, well, welcome to the internet, no matter what. No one's going to like everything that you do, but I really don't care. My, so. husband, my husband recently finished your article on the flapjacks. <laughs> oh yeah. He got a kick out of it. He really liked it. I'm glad. What I, what I do is in the actual books, I give away a lot more of these articles are like the cliff notes of what I've written. And I actually cite historic sources and all that. Uh, on the website, I'm trying to build a following on it, but I'm not going to give away the house. And the bottom line is, this is part of my occupation. I make money doing this. And uh, if I give away everything, I don't have anything left to sell. But I do want to give these articles that will enrich you, kind of uh, add a little something to your day, hopefully take your mind away from all the worries of uh, stuff going on and uh, remind you that we are just riding the tide of history. And this is all part of it. Whether you feel like Biden is a great change or it's the end of uh, American freedom, know that we've been at these crossroads before on both concerns. Do you know, um, don't get too elated and don't get too depressed. This is history in motion. Um, we've done it before. So. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Dave, you. for sharing your American story. It was fascinating. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. it. Dave was such a fun guest. He has an unbelievable amount of knowledge about the American West and its important impact on our history. If you have a passion for the American West or simply want to learn more, head on over to Dave's website at FrontierAmericanIllustratedNews.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. Please share this podcast with friends and family. Subscribe and give me a rating. And please join me next Friday for another American story. See you then.